can you state your name for the microphone, please? Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> I wish. Uh, can you take this seriously, please? Yes. <laughs> what is your name? Uh, John. John what? Beatles. <laughs> and who am I to you? Uh, my wife. <laughs> All right. Here are some questions I'm sure people are dying to know the answer to. How many times do you think that I've watched Titanic if you had to give a realistic guess, no joking? In your life? Yes. Uh, I know you saw it like 15 times in the theaters <laughs> when you were a kid. And I know that you've probably watched it a hundred times since we've been together. So maybe like 200 times, 250 times. I don't know. I think that's still a scant estimate, <laughs> <laughs> but that's close. All right. Where are we right now? Uh, we are recording in our son's closet. <laughs> It has the best acoustics, apparently. It has the best acoustics in the house. Okay, a couple more questions. What shirt does our son like to wear to bed? Uh, he has a Leo shirt. It's Leo from Gatsby, I think. And does... It used to be mine, but he stole it from me. Yeah, so that was my next question. It doesn't fit him, does it? No, it's it doesn't, but <laughs> he wears it anyway, like a dressing gown. All right. What is your relationship to Louis Abernathy? Who plays Lewis in the <laughs> in the um, 1996 timeline in the movie? What would you say your relationship is to him? Uh, I mean, he has some of my favorite dialogue in the movie. I mostly listen to Titanic when you're watching it from the other room, um, and I always enjoy Lewis's dialogue. And what is? <laughs> you can't make me do this. <laughs> The world loves you. You don't know that. I do. And it says, she popped out a couple of kids. <laughs> after he, after she moved where? I don't remember. It's you don't remember Iowa. where it is? No. Cedar Rapids. Iowa. Which is apparently a dead town. Because remember, he says, from what I've heard, Cedar Rapids is dead. Okay. Okay. Is there anything that you would like to tell uh, my listeners? Because you have to live with this every day. Oh, I also won Christmas uh, two years ago. A year? When was it? Two Christmases ago when I, I got you. When I got you a blanket that has the Vanity Fair picture photo shoot, photo shoot Kate from and Kate Leo. and Leo in the elevator. So we have a big blanket with that in our living room. I could post that video on my Instagram. Oh, oh, okay. Here's a, here's a, I mean, those were real questions, mm -hmm. but here's a serious question. What is, after having to live with the piles of books and be talking about it nonstop, what is your favorite non-James Cameron related Titanic thing that you've heard me talk about? Or you want me to do an episode on? My favorite non-James Cameron Titanic thing? Yeah, so the real Titanic. Yeah. Um, that's a tough question. There's so much. Oh, I do remember from when we went to the Titanic Museum and saw all the pictures of uh, taken by Father... Francis Brown? Father Brown. Yeah. I think that's a cool story. Um, I think you should tell it. So that's your vote? Yeah. All right. Thank you for hanging out in the closet. You're welcome. Unsinkable Studios. And uh, tell my listeners to have a lovely day. Have a lovely day.
can't believe you're making me jump through these hoops. <laughs> but wait, don't actually go anywhere. I don't know why I had him say that. I'm LA Beatles, and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is the final installment of Back to 1997. This is Titanic Forever. I think one of the big things about the cultural legacy of Titanic is its relationship to money. As I spoke about a couple of episodes ago, when it was being made, its budget and how its budget ballooned out of control, it was as much a news item as anything else related to the film. And, you know, variety entertainment publications kept a watch on it. And the narrative when the movie came out was very much, will it recoup its money? It seems impossible that a film could recoup this much money, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And then it did. The box office was a beast on this movie. It was a, you know, represented a true cultural phenomenon in dollars. And I want to talk about it first because there seems to be a narrative emerging 25 years later in pop culture that Titanic has become sort of dethroned in terms of its of how it made money and what a phenomenal like I said representation of its popularity through you know its box office how much a representation that was so I want to talk about it because I feel I feel a little defensive about it and that's just me you know laying my cards on the table but it's more complicated than oh, Titanic was the number one movie of all time, but it was dethroned by a Marvel movie. (laughs) If you're a Marvel fan, I'm sorry. I've actually had a few very meaningful uh, Instagram message exchanges with a few listeners about Marvel and kind of what it means for movies and sort of this conversation comparing what Titanic did in 97, 98, with what goes on with box office and film now. And some of you are on the same page as me and, you know, in terms of thinking things are very different and Marvel has changed how movies are made and how we see movies. And I'm not the biggest fan of that change. And some people are on the other opposite, on the opposite side and love Marvel. And what I appreciate is that the listeners that I've talked to about this, you know, the debate that we've had has been really healthy and fun, even if we're not on the same side, which is obviously what a debate should be. All that said, <laughs> Titanic in the box office, the beast box office. So it oh, let's let's break it down, and then we'll talk about what's happened. So it opened on two thousand six hundred and seventy four screens in December of nineteen ninety seven in the U.S. It beat the James Bond movie that came out that same day by six million dollars. Oh, I'm sorry, by four million dollars. And it took in a total of $29 million in that first weekend in December 97, which in itself was a feat because with the running length of over three hours, of course, that film, Titanic, could show fewer times during the day. 
than, say, something like Bond or a romantic comedy that's an hour and 45 minutes. By week two, it made $35 million, an increase of 25%, which is what that was from the first weekend. That was, even that was very unprecedented uh, and still is very unprecedented. It reached $100 million after only 12 days and by February had made $300 million faster than any film in history. Its strongest weekend was actually a month after its initial release, Valentine's Weekend of 1998. So its current, let's break this down, its current standings in domestic box office, so in United States only box office receipts, it currently is still in at number seven in the top 10. But it's the only movie from the 90s that's still in the top 10. So even with increasing ticket prices, it hasn't been knocked out yet. And every other movie in the top 10 was released in the last 10 years. Um, Avengers Endgame, Black Panther, Avengers Infinity War, Jurassic World, Star Wars, Episode 8, The Last Jedi. I don't know. I'm not a Star Wars person. So sorry. <laughs> and of course, oh, and number one is uh, Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens. I don't know. Am I about to receive a lot? I'm about to receive a lot of angry emails. I'm not a Marvel person or a Star Wars person at all. I appreciate it. I'm just not. So all of the other movies in that top 10, except for Cameron's films, Titanic and then Avatar that's still in there at number four were actually released in the last 10 years. And what I mean to get at by saying that is that the rest of the titles in that top 10, except for Avatar and Titanic, have some fluidity and seem to be recent. Those spots tend to stay with more recent films, which might indicate that eventually they may plop down. I don't know. I'm not a box office expert, but that's my opinion. Worldwide, Avatar is actually still number one, which is crazy. And Titanic Worldwide Box Office, Historic Box Office, is still at number three. <laughs> so it's the same story. All of the others in this top 10 on global box office came out in the last 10 years. Most of them in the last seven years, except for Titanic and Avatar. Titanic is 25 years old this year. And I suspect there'll be a 25th anniversary release of the movie at some point this year. I'll be the first in the ticket queue. And I hope, I've, I've heard tale actually that there's going to be some sort of reunion special. There was some, there were some news items floating around online a couple of months ago. You might have seen them. Uh, some in quote unquote inside source supposedly had heard that James Cameron was in talks with Leo and Kate to do some sort of, of reunion where they may rebuild some of the sets. Not in terms of um, any sort of sequel, not a not um, a scripted, but just an unscripted sort of reunion special. So hopeful, I'll die. I love it. <laughs> uh, we'll see. And I imagine there'll be. Just a lot of 25th anniversary content on the movie as we uh, get closer to the end of the year where it's the 25th anniversary. So I'm looking forward to that. And like I said a few weeks ago, I will likely re-release these episodes at that point and hopefully have an episode maybe with someone who worked on the film. It is a big goal of mine. I have sent out some feelers to some people 
I haven't heard anything back, but I am nothing if not persistent and stubborn. So I'm sure it will, uh, it will happen. This may be a, <laughs> here's an example. Guys, this episode is more casual. I don't have a script really. I'm just, I just wanted to, to feel this one out. So here's a story I'll reveal about myself. A few years back, I really, really, really fell in love with the movie Call Me By Your Name. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous film. If you haven't seen it, it's Timothy Chalamet's, it was, he was Oscar nominated for, and it really was, I hate the word breakthrough performance, but it really, really was. It's just a, a stunning performance by him. If you're a fan of, of love stories, which you might be if you're listening to this episode, obviously it's, it's a great one. And it's based on a, a wonderful book by Andre Asimov and by the same name, Call Me By Your Name. And that film really, really spoke to me. It was a sort of, you know, story of first love and coming of age, not dissimilar to Titanic. Anyway, long story short, Chalamet was actually in, I live in Austin or right outside of Austin. And Chalamet was in Austin for an event a few months later. And I read about it online. Tickets were sold out. It was a Q&A. I told my husband, I'm just going to go to the theater and be creepy. And I just want to see if I can, you know, be kind of a groupie and and sneak a peek and say hi or wave. And so I did. (laughs) And I ended up running into Timothy Chalamet's publicist, one of his publicists. It was someone on his team that was getting out of a car. And I talked to her and asked if I could just have a chance to meet him And, and texting my husband during this whole thing. And you know, he says, if any, if anybody can just get in the car, drive somewhere and, um, you know, hunt down a Oscar nominated actor and get a picture, it's you. So that's what I did. And he came out of the theater and <laughs> got to talk to him for a minute. I have a picture. I don't even remember what I said because I was so weirdly nervous. And I'm sure maybe somewhere in the back of Timothy Chalamet's head, he's like, yeah, I, I remember when I was at that theater screening in Austin and this 30-something-year-old woman really, really wanted to meet me and seemed into taking the picture with me but had nothing interesting to say. And that's, that's, I mean, I doubt he even remembers it. But if he did, that's what he would remember. So long story short, I am nothing if not persistent and I will get something done by the end of the year for a special guest. Mark my words, I'm going to do it. All right. In 1997 and early 1998, if you're old enough to remember, then you remember this feeling about Titanic. It was palpable. And now there's so much discourse about the movie 25 years later, what it means, who loved it, who didn't. People are sort of revoking their love for it, or some people are discovering it. It was on Netflix recently, and there seemed to be a whole new generation of younger people who had never seen it before. Then their minds were sort of blown and I love that. There's different camps when it comes to Titanic now. It is whenever you have a movie that is this much of a cultural touchstone, uh, such a with such a water cooler moment when there could still be a water cooler moment, then you're going to have debate. It's healthy. And I know I seem defensive about the movie and I joke, but I think debate is healthy. I think it's fun <laughs> if there weren't different camps uh, in terms of some sort of, you know, pop culture moment or or thing, then it wouldn't be fun. I think that's part of what makes it fun is the discourse and Titanic is never short on discourse. But in 1997 and obviously into 1998, it was a very lived thing. It was a lived in moment. 
And I remember, <laughs> I remember standing in line for tickets. And if you're if you're under the age of say 25 now, you probably haven't experienced this where you would go to the theater and you would have to buy your ticket at the theater. There were obviously no online sales in 97. The internet was in our lives, but it didn't do things yet. <laughs> That's kind of a weird way to say it, but it didn't. You know, online ticket sales weren't really a thing yet. You had to go. So you go and you hope you get there in time and you stand online and you, you know, watch the people in front of you ticking by and you count how many people are in front of you and you just hope there's that many seats left. And with every person that's in front of you, you envision in your head, that's me getting closer and closer to the screen. And I might have to sit at the very, very front of the theater, but I'll do it if I have to because I'm not giving up. And I remember a couple of times when I went to see Titanic, the woman running the ticket counter would come out looking, you know, just completely exasperated because I'm sure she was bone tired and, you know, yelling, we've got eight more tickets or we've got 12 more tickets and then count the people in front of me. And, you know, at the time it was frustrating and I hated it. But now that I look back, it's turned to complete nostalgia just this idea that you go to the movies and everybody's going to the movies. Everyone's clamoring to go to the movies and we don't have that anymore. I think we saw a little bit of that with Spider-Man and there is a there is a little bit of that with the Marvel movies. I totally concede that point. But it's just... It just doesn't seem as rewarding an experience anymore. I don't think that movies at all are even a monoculture thing anymore. We all watch them in different ways and and mostly at home and everything is so niche so I think I mean to think that there's some way we could get that sort of old monoculture movie moment back I just don't even think it's possible anymore but Titanic was just in the air it was this earnest organic playing out of a monoculture moment and it was before we were on like I said the internet all day it's before, I mean, think about it, guys. Think about how much just, I mean, I know it sounds, it makes me sound old to say internet sites, websites, but that's what they are. I mean, just think about how much websites run our lives now. It's where we get our information. It's where we interact with, for a lot of us, you know, a huge chunk of our friends, our acquaintances. And that wasn't the way it was in 1997. And we weren't, and we weren't on some constant information overload. And so you could go to the theater and see a movie and you hadn't read 10 reviews about it yet. And you hadn't seen that so-and-so critic from so-and-so podcast already has a take about the movie and is already frustrated with it or whatever it may be. Your perceptions of a film were not colored by all of this. You went to see a movie and then you talked about it with your friends or your family. It's kind of a beautiful thing. <laughs> I'm very nostalgic for that if you can't tell. All right. Oscars 1998. Oh, talk about a moment I would like to go back to. I still remember being 13 and, and watching every minute of it. And now it's on YouTube and I can relive it anytime I want. All right. Titanic nominated for 14 Oscars, tying the record set by All About Eve back in 1950. And it won 11 of them. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design. Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Sound Effects Editing, Best Visual Effects, Best Music Original Song, and Best Music Original 
score. <laughs> it swept. And there's, I, I rewatched it on YouTube recently, and uh, Kate Winslet was one of the three nominations that didn't win. She was nominated for Best Actress and didn't win. No Leo, though. He wasn't nominated. And I, who's who knows how much of it is true, but I remember all of the discourse in the, you know, Gosh, I'm starting to sound old. The gossip columns. The gossip columns or you know, watching entertainment tonight back then. That's where you got all of your information on, you know, entertainment, the entertainment industry at least. But I remember there being this rumor that and he was boycotting the Oscars because he wasn't nominated. I don't I don't know if I believe that at all. I guess it's possible. I mean, I if I were him, I would be mad, you know. <laughs> the the most successful movie of all time. Everybody involved in it is nominated except for me. And I'm the, you know, one of the the real core elements of this film. Uh, I think I, I might be a little PO'd as well, so I don't blame him. But he's not there, which I remember as as a child watching. It was, uh, it was a big blow. But Kate is there, and I I recently watched it, like I said, and, and when she pops in, for the first time in that green dress. And if you go back and Google it, but she wore this gorgeous long sleeve green dress. It just was, is it like gold embroidery on the side? I can't remember if it's gold or silver. And she still had rose hair. She still had her, her hair was still red and in the long curls. And oh man, she's just, I talk about an, an icon. It's beautiful. So I want to play <laughs> a little clip from the beginning of the 1998 Oscars. This is the uh, the Billy Crystal Oscars heyday when uh, he would do an opening musical number. God, I miss it when that was done well. We could have a, I could have a whole nother podcast about what's wrong with the Oscars now, but I won't bore you with that. All right, so here we go. Listen to this. You probably haven't heard it in a while. Well, good evening and welcome to the Titanic. We are just like that great ship. We are huge, we are expensive, and everybody wants us to go a lot faster. So we will try to do that tonight. Are you ready to go to a real party? It's a wonderful night for us, us, us. Who will win? The five films nominated for Best Picture are. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a giant ship that started many years ago with an over-budget script. The boss was a loud director man who made accountants sick. Two studios teamed up to pay for a three-hour flick. Everybody, a three-hour flick. Uh, <laughs> it's incredible. So just was, uh, you know, Billy Crystal comes out on the stage He's riding the bow of the ship. They have a um, a set created that that looks just like the bow of Titanic, and he rides it up. So the moment that he emerges onto that Oscar stage in '98, it's clear that Titanic is the story. It's the whole story of the Oscars, really, almost that year. And the Oscars back in the '90s were still, I think, very representative of of you know general culture. And I think they were still something that the average person got excited about. And so that was a really big deal to just show how pervasive Titanic was in the culture at the moment. Also, I, I was rewatching it. And when, you know, Jim Cameron goes up several times because he wins as editor and he wins as director and he wins uh, for the film when it when it wins because he was a producer. And I 
there I can't remember which award he goes up for. And at some point he's thanking the cast and he, he does say, he says, Leo, wherever you are. And there's this great moment where the camera heads to Kate Winslet in the front row and she's sitting next to Gloria Stewart. So it's the two roses. Oh, what a great 90s moment. And Kate Winslet's face sort of just goes like, Ugh. I know you can't see me, but just imagine my eyes go, or just look it up. Just, just, just watch it on YouTube. Uh, but yeah, no Leo. It's an alternate universe where Leo was there that night, but we'll just we'll never see that version. So obviously the most <laughs> famous moment, though, to come out of the Oscars that year was James Cameron accepting, uh, I think it's for Best Director, and he says, I'm the king of the world, and relives Jack Dawson's line on the bow. And he's really taken a lot of flack for it then and then over the years, and I don't, I don't understand why. I think, you know, that sound clip has become a cultural moment in itself. And I don't get it. I think for someone who had spent the better part of the the previous two years making this very complex film, he had lived and breathed it for so long. I think if you put that much of your soul into something, you have very much the right to celebrate being lauded for it. And I think that was him jumping on the stage and just sort of being maybe kind of innocently excited and trying to find a way to communicate to the audience how he felt, that he felt like Jack Dawson on the bow of that ship. I actually think it's a really earnest and wonderful moment. Anyway, so this there's this iconic Oscars in 1998. The Saturday after the Oscars in the Los Angeles Times, <laughs> on the front page of the calendar section... There was actually a diatribe from James Cameron against Kenneth Turan, who was, I think it's Turan, uh, T-U-R-A-N, Turan? Turan, Kenneth Turan, we'll say Turan. He was the film critic in the LA Times. So there's this, you know, you're, you've watched the Oscars, and then the next Saturday you open up the LA Times, and there's this diatribe by Cameron where he is raking the film critic Turin over the coals. Turin had been one of the only critics in the country to rage against the movie. One of the only major critics in the whole country to not write fairly positively about Titanic. Cameron wrote, quote, Turin sees himself as the high priest of some arcane art form that is far too refined for the average individual to possibly appreciate, and that he'd lost touch with the joys of film he, Cameron, he pointed to many letters to the editor that had railed against Turin's bad attitude as well in the previous months um, in his, in Turin's own diatribes against Titanic. So these debates about, these debates about what Titanic is are not new. Reviews then often said that the romance is melodrama and the last hour of the movie is what's amazing, that kind of thing. So no, that's not some new hot take. I listen to a lot of podcasts a lot of film review or sort of film nostalgia podcasts. And oftentimes when they do a Titanic episode, <sighs> there's this sense of like, oh, this is a new argument, right? That the film is great, but we don't need the romance. Just give me the the James Cameron action movie at the end. That's not a new argument. That debate was already going on in 1997. And yes, people were already commenting on the dialogue and the script of the film. Variety called it perfectly when it said with quote uh, <laughs> that the movie was quote as effective as it is corny 
So there you go. I think those things can really exist together. I think people, a lot of people are made uncomfortable when those two things exist together, that something could be cheesy or, or corny and also successful and meaningful, I think. And I don't understand why it's that maybe some people are just a little cold inside or a little, you know, broken by the the stress of modern society and modern living, which is a very real thing, unfortunately, especially these days. But I, I don't understand why people can't find the room in their hearts for those two things to exist together. To be clear, though, the majority of the reviews in 97 and 98 were glowing. And the biggest critique of the film, though, was the love story. But most critics also argue, and I argue, and I think James Cameron will agree, as I'm about to point out, if it wasn't a love story, it wouldn't be the thing with legs that it was. I guess I'm confounded that so many critics, film critics, academic critics, armchair critics, take issue with the guttural way in which so many people connected with it emotionally. Cameron has said, quote, only by telling it as a love story can you appreciate the loss of separation and the loss caused by death. And I think he means Jack's death. So it is a melodrama, but it's well done. And that's what an epic is. And it's also so much more than that. It's the movie just as the actual ship from 1912 is, again, pardon my horrible pun, but it is a vessel for, it's evergreen. Um, and I'm, I'm actually stealing that word in terms of Titanic from author Hazel Gaynor, who I talked to a few days ago, and she was wonderfully gracious with her time. And we had a fantastic conversation about her book, The Girl Who Came Home. And that is going to be the book club episode for in a couple of weeks. It was just lovely to meet her. And she actually said that she's, you know, Titanic is evergreen in terms of its, in terms of, of how it allows us to use it as an analogy, um, how it is relevant in conversations of race, class, gender. And I just loved that word for it, evergreen. So credit to, <laughs> credit to Hazel on that word. One way in which it's evergreen for Cameron is in terms of its relevance to probably the most important issue of our time, which is climate change. And if you listen to my episode on James Cameron, you know he's become quite an activist in terms of climate change. In the added forward to his companion book, which was written in 2012, the new version, when they released the film in 3D, I believe. So this is the big glossy kind of coffee table book, movie companion book, it's the one that has all of the big pictures of the set, and it has um, some text just kind of going over a little bit the making of the film. So they re they updated this book in 2012. And for him, for Cameron, the film had come to represent something perhaps the most evergreen, to use that word, in its global relevance. Cameron said, quote, the story could have not been written better had it been fiction in terms of just the Titanic story, the quote, magnificence of the great ship matched in scale only by the folly of men who drive her hell bent through the darkness. He goes on to say, quote, we raise our children clinging to the hope that the world is a rational and merciful place. But every once in a while, an event takes place that blasts that belief to atoms. Now, this was 2012, and I would argue that, unfortunately, we're entering an era where these types of events, you know, that blast our beliefs to atoms, 
They happen a lot more often now. So, you know, him writing in 2012 is almost some amount of nostalgia in itself. So he said, quote, the Titanic exquisitely captures the worst and best of us in one impossible tale that really happened. And that, quote, warning Marconigrams of modern climate science are everywhere. And are we ignoring them? And I think that's actually a really amazing analogy. He says, quote, we are in that moral minute now, the pause between clearly seeing the danger ahead and the moment that it strikes us. So he says, essentially, we are Frederick Fleet up in the crow's nest in some way, or maybe we're Murdoch down on the bridge. But we can see and we can sense the iceberg. We've we've been given warnings <laughs> and we're in that moment before it strikes. So I think for a filmmaker who's been as obsessed with the subject of his film, and then as I've I've spoken about in previous episodes, Cameron went back to Titanic many times after 1997. I think there's a lot of meaning in how he finds renewed meaning in the movie that he made. I also think it's important to talk about the movie and women. I think that the 97 movie really opened up Titanic fandom for women in the first real way. It's weird to say fandom in terms of Titanic the ship because it is a shipwreck. It is the site of death. It is destruction and death. So I always feel a little weird saying fandom, but I do think it's the most effective way to describe people. And I am one of those people myself, people that obsessively read about the ship and want to all want to always know more, want to investigate, want to, you know, watch every movie, miniseries, documentary. I mean, I think fandom is it's just a word that works there. But prior to 1997, Titanic obsessives were largely men. The Titanic Historical Society was founded in the 1960s by a man named Ed Kamuda. He's a really important figure in terms of studying Titanic because he founded the THS and he had become interested in Titanic after Walter Lord's Night to Remember. And he had actually been in communication with Walter Lord. And he was really the first one to reach out in any consistent way to Titanic survivors. And Walter Lord had done that as well. And I think they probably wrote and, and worked together on a lot of this. But Kamuda, he worked to find the survivors, talk to them. He worked to find, you know, artifacts. And the Titanic Historical Society formed, you know, from a group of enthusiasts, but they were largely male and it's, you know, it's complicated to talk about gender in terms of these things. And I don't want to open up a can of worms. The Titanic Historical Society has done so much important work, and I don't mean to sound negative at all, but it was a very, very male space. And if you think about Robert Ballard and the finding of the shipwreck and all of the <laughs> all of the labor that was done to find the shipwreck, that's mostly male. A lot of the... Or, Say, I'm going to go ahead and say most of the articles and books and research done prior to the 90s on Titanic was done by white males. It's just been a very white male space in terms of the academic and research side of things, uh, in terms of telling the survivor narratives up into 97. I think 97, the 97 movie, 
not only gets women excited about the story of Titanic, but I think, and I'm the perfect example of this, that cross-pollination of loving the 97 movie and getting interested in the real story, what is produced as a generation of women that are suddenly in the conversation, in the Titanic conversation. And it's people like me who appreciate and love both. I think there's a lot of us. I know a lot of us. And I think that was a really important cultural moment in opening up the space for females. It's also interesting that the movie takes so much flack in culture for being loved by females. And once it became clear, it seems to me at least that once, and I've, you know, a lot of other people have had this thought, so it's not original. I just want to be clear on that. That once it became clear in American culture, and I think some places globally as well, that Titanic was something that young women loved, it began to get ripped apart. I mean, this started early on with Leo's fans, his female fans being described as things like swarms <laughs> of silly girls. I think as a society, we, men, women, all of us, need to look in a mirror and figure out why we continually insist on calling things that girls fall in love with and obsess over silly, and why we call girls silly when they become, you know, fervently into something. We don't do the same for young boys and young men. You know, take something like Star Wars, right? If a young boy is obsessed with Star Wars, they're nerdy, maybe. I think we throw around that word, which I also have a problem with sometimes. But we don't call them silly, but we sure call girls silly when they become obsessed with something. And teen girl culture is degraded a lot, but it is valid <laughs> and important. And it is formative. And I think, and I can speak to this as I'm a 37-year-old woman now. I'm a mom. I've, you know, lived a fair amount of life. The the formative years when I was, say, you know, 11 to 18 of falling in love with different things, trying on different things, you know, that, I think that, that time in a girl's life is so important. And it's important for the people around her to nurture those things in her. And it is for boys as well. I'm not, you know, absolutely. I'm just talking specifically about kind of girl culture right now. It's, it's important. And, and I use the word valid again, it's valid. And, but we treat it like it's not, we treat it like it's something that a woman should grow out of. And I am the perfect example of how the opposite is true. I, had more success in my adult life over recent years when I returned to that sense of just wonder and being into something unabashedly and unashamedly. This podcast is the perfect example. This series of episodes I'm doing about the 97 movie are the perfect example. I'm sure there are a lot of people that might view me as silly <laughs> for doing something like this. I mean, if you're one of those people, you're probably not listening right now, but I guess I've just reached the point in my life where I don't care. And I think it's the things that the things that we often tend to hide about ourselves, the things that we tend to say are our guilty pleasures, we should throw that term away. And whatever you think your, quote, guilty pleasure is, that's the thing probably that, or one of the things that most defines you and makes you most excited and happy. And if, in my experience, if you start being really open and honest about what those things are in your life, you will receive back the karma and the wonderful energy tenfold. And with this podcast, I've had that experience and it's been 
just absolutely mind-blowing and wonderful. All right. In terms of girl culture and Titanic in the 90s, I do think there's there's one thing that's kind of turned into, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know, not negative, but uh, my heart will go on, I think is a perfect example of sort of overconsumption of a cultural moment. Its origins were, you may not know this, as of a secret song that James Horner wrote and had Celine Dion record before he took it to James Cameron, who originally said he didn't want a song in the film. He waited until James Cameron was in a good mood and played it for him, and Cameron apparently loved it. It is a fantastic song. It did work perfectly with the movie, but at one point in 1998... Radio stations were playing it up to 73 times a week per station. That's once every two hours. (laughs) And I remember this. So I, you know, it's one of those songs that played out so heavily in the moment that it's almost impossible to listen to it now. And, you know, I can go back and listen to James Horner's score for Titanic and I, I, it, it holds up. It's beautiful. I think it's one of the best movie scores ever made. And a lot of music, you know, classically trained music people tend to agree with me there. At least I've heard on podcasts and such. So I can listen to the score, and I often do when I'm writing. I listen to movie scores a lot when I'm writing. But the song, I can't listen to. (laughs) I think as a 13-year-old girl, I just listened to it so much and watched the music video. They they had the version where they interspersed the sound clips from the movie from Jack and Rose, and that would play on VH1 and MTV. And I don't know. I've, I've heard several of the actors from the movie, including Kate Winslet, comment that they just can't bear when the song comes on. And sometimes when they go into restaurants, places... People will put the song on or play the song thinking that's what they want and that it's uh, it's definitely not what they want. I'm a big Celine Dion fan, but I think on that song, it's it's just it's just too much. And maybe that maybe another 10 or 20 years will change that for me. And I even I even, you know, I even went to Vegas to see her live show in the early days. And I wasn't even old enough to really enjoy Vegas. I think I was 18 or 19 at the time and uh, went to Vegas to see her show so I could see her perform that song and see her like hit her chest with her hand. And But even I, it's just too much. I can't listen to it anymore. So the soundtrack was important, though, because it was really at the time a way to relive the movie at home, back when there was only one way to see a movie in the theaters, and then it wouldn't be on VHS for, you know, almost a year is how they did things back then. So, by the way, I that's another nostalgia thing. I loved the wait. At the time, I was angry, but now I'm looking back and the wait for a movie to come on VHS is just that delicious sort of anticipation. We don't have that anymore. I think we have way too much when the second that we want it now. I think about this a lot in terms of my children and they're five and and seven. There's just anything they want. They just, especially with entertainment, they just have it at the drop of a hat. And I don't, I don't know. It's not good. All right. Uh, The soundtrack was at the top of the charts for 16 weeks. No other instrumental score had ever sold as steadily. There was a heavy, heavy Inya influence on the score. I think I mentioned this before. James Cameron listened to Inya when he wrote. He loved it, loved the feel of Inya for the movie. He asked Inya to participate in the score. She declined. But interestingly enough, her sister Marie Brennan appeared on the Back to Titanic CD 
singing Come Josephine in my flying machine. That's actually a bit of trivia that I didn't know. So do you want to tell an in-your-related story? Uh, so, oh, and by the way, uh, the vocals that end up on the actual Titanic soundtrack are obviously not Inya, but they are a singer named Sissel. I believe she was Norwegian. Then uh, she... <laughs> very much on purpose, sounds a lot like Enya in those vocals. So that's who that is. It's a singer named Sissel, and her voice is absolutely, obviously um, gorgeous. So I'm going to tell an Enya story, though. There is this song from Enya called Book of Days. So I was obsessed with Enya in the 90s and early 2000s, and just like things that you're obsessed with, you can kind of ebb and flow over the years. And so, you know, over the last year, I started listening to Enya again. Of course, doing all of this is what instigated that. And I heard, uh, for the first time in a lot of years, the song Book of Days. It really got into my kind of gut, and I couldn't figure out why. But every time I would hear it, I would. I had it on repeat for a couple of days last year. Um, I just couldn't get it out of my head. Turns out, okay, so I recently was watching the movie Far and Away, which is a 90s movie with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. And if you haven't seen it... It really harkens back to, like I'm always talking about, you know, the 90s when studios still made, you know, kind of epic movies for adults with dramatic plot lines and movie stars. And Far and Away is really one of those. It is about an Irish immigrant who comes to America for land and gets, (laughs) uh, I don't want to ruin the movie, but he ends up traveling with Nicole Kidman, who, like Rose in Titanic, comes from a more upper crust section of society, and he is a poor immigrant. So it's the sort of, you know, clash of the classes kind of romance, just like Titanic. And Far and Away was another one of the movies in the 90s that I was you know, obsessed with. I had the movie poster on my wall. So anyway, I watched this movie for the first time in forever during COVID, you know, one of the COVID lockdowns. And at the end of Far and Away, when the credits start to roll, what song plays but Book of Days? So I, you know, I run into my husband's office and I'm screaming, it all makes sense now. So also James Cameron used Book of Days, I think, in one of the early cuts of the trailers for Titanic. All that to say, just, you know, follow your gut. When your gut tells you that there's a connection between things and and especially with music, I feel like there's a lot of memories that are floating around in there in our conscious and subconscious and they can sort of be unlocked by music and for me that's that really was kind of a crucial moment of of tying kind of some of my 90s memories together so anyway that may be the most uninteresting story you've ever heard in your life and if it is i apologize the film completely reworked any cultural history around the music and the ship the celtic style the irish music that you know, the ambient kind of new age world music elements of the score as well. All of this combined to make, well, I should say it didn't passively happen. James Horner worked to combine all of these elements. And that music, the Titanic score, represents the sinking of Titanic for so many people now because those two are married so intricately in our kind of cultural mind and we can't separate them. So I think for a lot of people, that very Celtic, Irish haunting melody represents the ship itself now. 24 CDs associated with the film, (laughs) many that had period pieces written for Palm Court court orchestras, because those were the ones where rights were really cheap to get, you know, to put on a CD. So tons of 
taking advantage of the popularity of Titanic with the release of some of these sort of mimicry CDs, you know, Titanic adjacent CDs with era appropriate music on it. There was this proliferation of Irish folk music, Celtic New Age CDs, this musicalizing, is that a word? I don't know, this is why I need a script, of Gaelic culture, the romanticizing of it. A lot of the Celtic uh, or Celtic adjacent bands and musicians that become popular in this era or emerge after the popularity of, of this movie kind of feeds that interest don't even have a cultural hold in Ireland. They (laughs) are more popular in the United States and in other countries, you know, like Australia, whatever it may be, uh, because it's just capitalizing on the interest in this Gaelic or Celtic music and not necessarily representative of what, you know, people in Ireland want in their culture, in their music right now. The perfect example of this is the... It's a band, but it's really um, almost like a performance group, uh, Celtic Thunder. And I have a personal story with that as well, which is I, you know, I've, I mean, I'll put everything on the table. I am totally one of those people. I've always loved listening to Celtic and Irish music and, you know, these types of bands and singers that I'm talking about that aren't necessarily even popular in Ireland, but are represent what we think, you know, Gaelic or Irish music is. Anyway, I've always listened to them. I listened to Celtic Thunder a lot when I was pregnant with my son. And when he was a baby, obviously when you have a baby, you're just at home a lot. You're kind of just hanging out with the baby on a blanket a lot. And I would play music and I would play Celtic Thunder and he really responded to it and would ask for it as he got older, became a toddler. He is almost, well, he's seven and a half now and the interest in it has never wavered. We have all the DVDs, all the CDs. He has posters in his room. He has memorized the song at different points in his songs at different points in his life. And it's really important to him. We've, we've seen them several times in person. So there's a love, this cultural obsession with and love of this type of music, the Celtic kind of folklore music. Whether or not it's real and true to Irish culture, I cannot speak to. It doesn't seem like it really is. But it's um it's important to people and it's a real, you know, long-standing musical phenomenon at this point. And it really seems to feed into and have been fed by, you know, there's river, the river dance era in the 90s, there's the new age and world music impulse. Inya is the perfect purveyor of that in the 90s. There's a whole culture around that. Think about pure moods. Do you remember the if you're if you're old enough to do you remember the pure moods CDs and the commercials that would run on TV and you would order them through the mail? <laughs> but the pure mood CDs would just be a collaborate, you know, a collection of world and new age music. I think Inya's like Orinoco Flow was on the first pure moods. Man, if you want to return to the 90s with a little bit of an ethereal kind of feel. You just want to go in a room and escape and feel like you're in the 90s. Just go into a room and put your earbuds in with either Enigma's Return to Innocence or Inya's Orinoco Flow. You can't be unhappy. You will be happy. You will feel like you're at a spa in 1995. I highly recommend it. 
I do it all the time. So a few pop culture moments or culture moments, I think, too important to mention in the immediate aftermath of the film's release. You have, you know, I think you might remember reading about this at the time, things like fans, super fans of the movie discover that there actually was a person named Jay Dawson on board. I believe he was a crew member. And so there are pilgrimages to Jay Dawson's grave in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where a lot of the, the victims' graves are, and people place <laughs> flowers, mementos on the grave of a man named Jay Dawson. The, you know, <laughs> the the making of the Heart of the Ocean necklace replicas, and this is still a thing. We went to the Titanic Museum attraction this past summer. I did a bonus episode about that, by the way. And in the gift shop of the museum, there's a huge chunk of wall dedicated to replica heart of the ocean jewelry. So it's very much still a thing. The J. Peterman catalog at the time included some of the, included replicas of some of the costumes of Titanic. I saw on their Instagram account recently, they posted some of the old screenshots of it and were asking Instagram users if they should... Uh, rejuvenate some of those listenings probably for the 25th anniversary. And I think I commented on there. Yes, please do that. I mentioned last week, the Max Factor makeup line, or it was two weeks ago. So there was a whole makeup line, you know, look like Rose and Titanic, although none of us would have ever been able to look as good as that. It would have never worked. Uh, cruise ship bookings went up exponentially at the time, but a lot of people got in trouble for going down to the bow of the ship and trying to reenact the Jack and Rose flying scene. Also, cruise ship employees reported at the time a lot more passengers asking them about the number of lifeboats and how the lifeboats worked in greater detail (laughs) on ships at the time. So I want to play a couple of ads that I found. I went sort of looking online to try to find the remnants of some of these you know, invasive cultural moments of Titanic. And they're harder to find. You know, this is 97, 98. Uh, Not everything is on YouTube, contrary to what we believe. I think some things may be a little bit lost to time. But I did find a couple of ads that really represent how pervasive it was. So the first one is actually a commercial from 1997. So just listen to it first, and then I'll sort of explain it. I mean, you can also look it up, but I just wanted to play it. It has swept the world, enjoyed by more people, in more countries, for more reasons than any film in history. Seven Up invites you to experience Titanic, now on home video. Seven Up, air conditioning for a passionate world. Okay, so the audio, and that's terrible. I apologize. Just look it up. But actually, the audio on the clip on YouTube is terrible because it's a transfer of a transfer of some sort. But it says at the end, 7-Up, air conditioning for a passionate world. And that's because the whole ad is just handprints on glass in different spots, I guess, throughout the world. Um, It sort of implies that people have been inspired by the movie to be, you know, passionate, if you know what I mean, like Rose's handprint on the door. And uh, that's an interesting tie-in, you know, Titanic VHS, 7-Up, and, you know, a handprint on fogged up windows. <laughs> it's just an interesting combo. And I'm sure Titanic did encourage a lot of people to be 
uh, amorous. <laughs> so I guess it's accurate. I I was 13, so I was, you know, one wasn't happening for me. But all right. So the other ad I found was when the movie was released on VHS. And it's, it's a great blockbuster ad. Oh, blockbuster nostalgia. Just remember, like, looking through the aisles for hours and hours at a time. So this is the ad from when it was released and Blockbuster was letting everybody know, you're going to stampede us. We know that, but don't worry. The movie's guaranteed to be here. And I shared this clip on my Instagram recently, this little ad clip, and uh, got a lot of funny responses from you guys on there. But I remember I was not, my parents weren't super into being somewhere at midnight. So I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't at the midnight release, but I did have my mom reserve copies of the VHS at two different spots. I believe at a Blockbuster and then at a Sam Goody. Talk about 90s nostalgia. And I, so I had to have a backup. You know, I told her like, no, we have to to reserve it at two spots because one place could run out or something. So she picked me up from school that day. It was a school day. I was so mad, but she picked me up from school that day with the VHS and I... I will never, ever forget that moment. So here's the ad from Blockbuster. I thought it was pretty fun. That's true. tickets to win a fantasy cruise. I mean, really, it is kind of problematic, right, when you think about a Titanic because of this film becomes associated with romantic cruises. I mean, the actual Titanic disaster is anything, but it's, uh, it is problematic, but also, you know, that's the 90s. So there you go. The sound is, of course, the stampede of girls headed into Blockbuster, and it's like two male employees putting the sign up in the window. You know, Titanic's coming, and then they hear the stampede. I don't know. It just, man, there is, I miss that. I miss movies being one of the main cultural shared experiences that we have as a culture. That's just gone. It's just gone. And some of it's for good reasons. And there's so many niche places that we can watch movies now. And there are so many movies made for so many different types of people. And whatever your thing is, you can go find that thing now and access it at home. So there's a lot of a lot of beauty to that. But I do miss when movies and movie theaters were, you know, a cultural uh, like watering hole for us all. I miss that. Jumping forward in time, I almost titled this episode, Yes, I Saw the Cat Video. <laughs> the, it was perfect timing, honestly, on something. Uh, if you haven't seen it, there is a video. Um, the YouTube channel is Owl Kitty. And this YouTube channel puts, I believe, a cat in movies and things. I had never heard of this YouTube channel before. It was my introduction to it. But the owner of the YouTube channel, I'm not sure who they are, But they did a fantastic job on a video this past week for Valentine's Day, which is Titanic with a cat. And it is Leo as Jack in all the scenes or some of the scenes from the movie in sort of a trailer that's recut with Kate Winslet out as Rose and the cat in instead. And it's pretty incredible. I cannot tell you how many. I mean, I obviously have a brand 
I have a brand. It's Titanic. I cannot tell you how many people on both my personal Instagram account and on the unsinkable Instagram account messaged me this link over the last week. And I love it. And every single time someone did, I had the same response, which is thank you. I love that I have a brand. This has dominated my week and I'm not mad at it. I'm not. I'm just not. I love it. It's fantastic. And I think the fact that, you know, 25 years later, on a Valentine's Day, we are still with Titanic as this cultural uh, touchstone moment in something like this viral online. It just goes to show you that the timelessness of what the movie is transcends the eras. Here we are in a completely different era than what 1997 was in terms of technology and the internet and how it is in our lives. And yet Titanic just barrels through all of those potential barriers and is still relevant. And I think it's These are images that a 10-year-old now knows and a 90-year-old now knows, and it's evergreen. All right. I wanted to mention a few. I'm going to get to everything that you guys sent in, which is a random grab bag, which I love. But first, I want to talk a little bit about a few other cultural references that I thought of and sort of made notes on over the last couple of years. the At the beginning of the pandemic, there was a mural. Probably you may have seen it online. I think it went rather viral. And it's in India, but there is a social distancing mural that was put up at the beginning of the pandemic that is Kate and Leo on the bow of the ship, but they're socially distanced and with their masks on. It also weirdly looks like Leo is about to attack her strange, but Google it because it was, I saw that back in 2020 and I was not surprised to see that, you know, in those, that first stage of the pandemic as artists were turning, you know, our collective struggle into art or into just projects that Titanic was one of the first big ones to, you know, uh, sort of become part of that process as we all jumped online and tried to talk about the pandemic. So that did not surprise me. Titanic 2. <laughs> a lot of people have messaged me about this movie in terms of my Titanic on film series and have asked me if I'm going to take the time to review it. I will let you know right now, probably not. I I do, I have a couple of listeners that have messaged me over the last few months that they have watched it. Um, at least one of them said that they made sure to have some strong cocktails on hand while they watched it. If you're not aware, this is a, it seems like a very, very B-level, maybe even C-level film that is available on Amazon. I don't know how they got away with calling it Titanic 2, because that would imply that it's a, it's a, a sequel to Titanic the movie. I guess the point is that it's the ship in the, this movie is Titanic 2. Okay, I just worked that out in my mind. Like this, the new Titanic. Anyway, I don't think I'll watch it. I it looks ridiculous. I think I have a line, you know, but it is it is a thing. Also, a big one is the MythBusters episode from a few years back, where James Cameron appears on the TV show MythBusters to sort of cameo as the Mythbusters attempt to figure out whether Jack would have fit on what everybody calls is a door. But if you listen to my previous episodes, you know it was not a door. It's a piece of oak paneling. A lot of people reference this Mythbusters episode as evidence 
that this whole Jack could have fit theory is correct, which astounds me because if you watch the episode, which I have, and, you know, and I think it's very common, and this isn't an original thought, I'm sure we've all had it, I think it's very common in the internet culture that we have now, which is just so based on like quick clicks and takes and sort of sentence long (laughs) summaries that things seem to just sort of make their rounds online and people don't go back to the original source of something. So if you go back to the original source of the episode of Mythbusters that this is, then you realize what they say at the end. They do a whole experiment in a river, I believe, and they've got, you know, the clothes on. They're on the exact replica of the piece of wood. They do conclude that... If Jack and Rose had taken the time to take off Rose's life belt and put it underneath the piece of wood, kind of buoying it up more, if they had tied that just the right way. So, yes, technically speaking, Jack could have survived on that slice of wood if in freezing water, and they're already near hypothermia, they would have had the wherewithal to tie a life belt underneath a piece of wood while, you know, 1,500 1500 other people flail around them. So (laughs) to me, that's a no. To me, that's a proving that no, that's not realistically could have happened. But also, why does it matter? Because it's a plot device in a movie that was very much needed for the movie to be what it is. Anyway, I mean, James Cameron's always game, though, which I love. He appears on the Mythbusters. I don't know if you've ever seen. I think it was in 99. I have this on my list, too. There's a skit he did. I think it was for MTV with Vince Vaughn and Ben Stiller. And talk about Titanic, too. Ben Stiller and Vince Vaughn. It's an improv session where they are pitching the idea of Titanic, the sequel to James Cameron, who's in their office. You should, you know, look it up on YouTube. It's hilarious. So Cameron always seems game to make fun of himself, and he always seems game to make fun of the phenomenon that Titanic was, and I I very much appreciate that. Uh, okay, a few more that I thought of. There is the Legend of the Titanic animated movie, which, to your credit, listeners, a lot of y'all messaged me about as well. It is just this re- I've I've watched maybe 10 or 15 minutes of it. It is an animated feature. It is available on Amazon. A lot of the plot seems ripped off from James Cameron's movie. It is Titanic, but with animated, you know, mice that are are talking and maybe dancing at some point. My brain couldn't process it very well, so I stopped after about 15 minutes. Uh, Lots of stuff in movies and TV just over the years, it becomes this language that... Uh, you know, shows up in scripts of other things. I was watching Bridget Jones's Diary again a few months ago, and it pops up in there when Bridget goes off with, gosh, what is Hugh Grant's character's name? Because Colin Firth is Mark Darcy. I can't remember. And I'm going to keep recording, and I'll remember after I get done recording and feel like an idiot. But anyway, when she's on the lake with Hugh Grant and they're rowing and Hugh Grant is like drinking and smoking a cigar or something and being silly and he falls off the rowboat and I'm the king of the world and then falls. Uh, (laughs) This is, I mean, I'm sure someone online has tallied up all of the references, uh, but I, I couldn't find it. Okay, also on The Office, I'm a big Office person, shout out other Office people, there is the episode where Michael is giving the the sort of seminar about aging, <laughs> and he has 
the old the picture of old Rose up on the wall, just with a lot of pictures of very old people. I love that one. There was an ad for McDonald's I came across online from the uh, the era of the Alvin and the Chipmunks movies that came out, and the chipmunks in one of the ads are on the bow of the ship saying, I'm the king of the world. There's a lot of I'm the king of the world references. Uh, the Britney Spears music video, which also a lot of y'all did message me about as well. She says, of course, in the middle of the Oops, I Did It Again video to the astronaut who has, it makes no sense. This astronaut presents her with the heart of the ocean and she says, oh, I thought the old lady dropped it in the ocean at the end. And then he says, yeah, but I went down and got it for you. It's ridiculous. But also it's a great song and a great 90s moment and just have to be open to this nostalgia. I feel like a lot of people <laughs> messaged me about the Simpsons. There are so many Titanic Simpsons references. I don't think it would even be possible to catalog all of those. You'd have to go through meticulously. But a few I found online. There's one where Homer does a prank call and he says, hey, old lady from Titanic, you stink. <laughs> there is one where there is a bit titled Roger Corman's Titanic, which is and then the ship, you know, in the iceberg, there's a scene, which is such a deep cut because that is definitely a commentary specifically, and watch it, just Google it, it's it's easy to find, it's specifically a commentary on Roger Corman and the type of movies he makes. Also, it's a James Cameron reference. James Cameron used to work for Roger Corman, so that's a deep cut reference, which I very much appreciate. There's a an episode where there's a Titanic meets Frasier pitch for a TV show or movie. I can't remember which one. There is Lisa screaming in one episode. I'm queen of the world in spelling. I'm queen of the world in spelling. Um, that's a good one. Anyway, tons of Simpsons references over the years. There is, uh, speaking of the YouTube uh, kind of phenomenon of, you know, recutting things or making fake trailers, which is a big deal and has been for years and continues to be so, which is fun. Uh, there is a Jack Returns trailer that has circulated on YouTube you might have seen, which someone has cut various clips from Leo's movies and Kate's movies and come up with a... <laughs> a fake trailer for if Jack had lived and returned. And it's, I haven't watched it in a while. I need to go back and watch it. But it's one that over the years, many, many people have sent me. It seems to be a YouTube classic at this point. And of course, you know, draw me like one of your French girls, the moment and the scene that has launched a thousand memes and a thousand parodies, even and it starts in 1998, Billy Crystal parodies that scene in one of the Oscar montages. He's laying on a couch and he's parodying it. And that's probably one of the first big ones. And then it never stops. And it's, you know, it's something that you can find in a thousand different forms online. As a joke, a couple of years ago, I got my husband a Leo shirt. I think I found it on Society6. And it's it's not Jack Dawson. It's like actually Leonardo DiCaprio in a, like a casual streetwear outfit just from a paparazzi shot. And he's um, or maybe he was laying on the beach and it's him laying <laughs> and then it says, you know, draw me like one of your French girls. So it's, I, I don't know that I could even begin to catalog where all that has gone. But again, that's just a, a common language that we have online now uh, from this movie, which is sort of fun. SNL skits over the years. If you think of others that I forgot, please let me know. But I've always been a big SNL person. There's Bill Paxton in 1999. <laughs> In a skit that is 
ages terribly and even already at the moment that it aired probably did it. I hope it didn't come off very well because it is it's like an alternate ending to Titanic and in it Sherry O'Terry plays Old Rose and Bill Paxton and his crew end up like beating her up because she won't give them information. It's sort of like it's a it's a play on kind of oh gosh, this old lady has made us sit around and listen to her love story for hours and hours and hours. Please tell us where the necklace is. And it turns out she's you know has dimensions, not really Rose. And anyway, it goes a it goes a. It's pretty weird there at the end, but uh, James Cameron makes a cameo in it at the end as well. I think that was in 99. There is Zach Galifianakis, a skit from 2010, where he's a man who has snuck onto one of the lifeboats uh, because he dresses as a woman. All the women on board know he's a man, and so he's not really fooling anybody because he has a beard, but he sticks with a with the uh, the narrative on the lifeboat, turns out he's actually Captain Smith. And then at one point, someone dressed as or, or someone also dressed as a woman pops up, and it's Bruce Ismay. Some deep cut references there as well. There is a 2016 Women and Children First skit with Larry David, which is not technically Titanic, I don't think, but it is. Uh, the point of the skit is uh, Larry David taking issue with women and children first, and he's sort of nitpicking like who's allowed to get in the boats. That one's pretty funny. Then, while promoting Wolf, I think it was when he was promoting Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, wait, when was it? I've got to look it up. Yeah, that was sorry. That was a pause. Looking things up. It was. It was in early 2014, so it would have been promoting Wolf of Wall Street. But Jonah Hill hosts, and Leo comes on to Jonah Hill's opening monologue. At the very end, and the bit is that Jonah Hill is nervous and he says, oh, you know, can we do that one thing we always do to comfort me? And it turns out to be that Leo stands behind him and uh, recreates the bow scene (laughs) with him. I'm flying Jack. I think Jonah Hill says that. And that moment was pretty incredible if you're a Leo fan because for two reasons. Because Leo doesn't tend to do, you know, he's never hosted SNL. He doesn't tend to do a lot of appearances like that. He mostly just does pretty straight-laced interviews, you know, on mainstream, very mainstream media channels when he has a movie coming out. And there, his interviews tend to be on the more serious side. So he doesn't really make a lot of, you know, funny, humorous appearances, which is, to me, sad because he's... In the little bits that I have seen over the years, he seems like he's quite funny. has a great sense of humor. So, you know, him appearing on SNL was a really big deal. And also, too, that it was really the first time, you know, that he had appeared and acknowledged Titanic in any real sense since Titanic. You know, he's, I don't know if distance is the right word, but he definitely has made an effort to stay separate from the cultural references and and the phenomenon of Titanic since the late nineties. And so this one was, (laughs) this one was uh, a big deal to see him kind of, you know, kind of exist in that world, be Jack Dawson again, just for the briefest of moments. I, I hold out hope that uh, for the 25th anniversary that we do get some Leo, some, you know, at least an interview or two, just kind of talking about, uh, the the legacy of the film and and what it must feel like 25 years later having been you know the part of that that he was so anyway SNL great oh and then recently I think it was was it last year early last year early 2021 or maybe been late 2020 uh, Bowen Yang being the iceberg on 
SNL. That was another, that was a great one. I think, you know, it just, it always pops back up. I feel like every few years there's, you know, some sort of skit on SNL that goes viral that involves it in some way. So anyway, the Bowen Yang iceberg one, if you haven't seen it, that's probably the best one of the bunch. Bowen Yang is very talented. Adore him. He's great. Let me go through a few that you guys sent me. So there is, and I'm, guys, I'm not going to use names. Um, I forgot to mention <laughs> when I sent out, you know, an all call for you to send me these references. I didn't remember to tell you like, hey, let me know if I have your permission to use your name. So because I don't technically have written permission in these messages from you to use your name, I want to err on the side of caution and and I'm just going to anonymize everything because I don't, I just don't, again, you know, without, without consent, um, I just don't feel comfortable mentioning everybody's names because there may be some of you guys that don't want that. So in the future, if you do write to me about anything and you'd like for me to read it on the show, just make sure to mention, hey, yeah, it's fine if you mention my name when you mention what I wrote it about. So there you go. But that's my mistake. And I apologize. So one, in an episode of Star Trek Voyager titled Year of Hell Part One, which premiered on November 5th, 1997, barely over one month before the premiere of Titanic, crew member Tom Paris proposes a safeguard against an alien weapon that would entail separating the ship into multiple specially shielded compartments so as to keep damage to a minimum, even in the event of a catastrophic breach in several compartments. He states his inspiration as being an ancient steamship, the Titanic. And this, Kate Mulgrew's character, Captain Janeway, with some understandable concern, responds, Titanic? As I recall, it sank only for Paris to Riley reply, Let's just say I've made a few improvements. And this listener said, I particularly like this nod to Titanic as it acknowledges that the general ideas behind the engineering and safety measures of the Titanic were sound in theory and referring to the ship as an ancient usually elicits a chuckle from me. And there is little doubt in my mind that this was also a nod to the Cameron film. So this listener feels like it was a nod to the Cameron film, even though it came out right before the movie. But as we know, the movie was uh, talked about and written about, about a lot heading into its release. So I definitely see where that could be possible. Um, another listener, here we go, the movie Love Actually. Uh, she mentioned a little boy's stress because his crush doesn't notice him. His dad, played by Liam Neeson, says, quote, we need Kate. We need Leo. We need them now. Oh, gosh, I, I feel you, Liam Neeson. I say that all the time. <laughs> and then they watch Titanic and recreate this the scene where Jack and Rose are flying on the bow of the ship, of course. Uh, this same listener mentioned that there's also an episode of Gilmore Girls where there is a memorial for Michelle's chow dog, Papa, and the music choice for the occasion is My Heart Will Go On, played on an acoustic guitar because it was Papa's favorite song. And both of those I I had forgotten about. I love Love Actually. I love Gilmore Girls. My daughter's name is Lorelai. So that tells you all you need to know. Uh, but I had forgotten about those too. So that was awesome. There is, um, let's see. Oh, another Simpsons reference. Uh, Green Day is playing a concert on a barge that sinks and they play Near My God to Thee. And Billy Joe Armstrong tells them, gentlemen, it's been an honor playing with you this evening. I had a listener mention something to me that I think 
I, I didn't know about at the time. I somehow missed it, or maybe I just blocked it out. I don't know. But the Hanson and Weird Owl spoof uh, from, I believe it's from 1998, the, the music video for the song River. In the video, Weird Owl tackles uh, the role of Bill Paxton of Brock Lovett, and Gloria Stewart is in it, reprising her role as Old Rose. Um, she's obsessed with the Hanson boys. I just played Umbop for my kids for the first time the other day. Whoa. Uh, I don't think they, they didn't get it. So instead of going back to tell the tale of the ship, though, she, Gloria Stewart, uh, tells Weird Al about the stories of Hanson's early days. So anyway, I completely forgotten about that one. That's that's a great 98, like right after moment. That's incredible. So, you know, a lot of um, a lot of these cultural references, you know, a lot of messages that I received were just kind of one line or a movie clip or a music, a music clip. So some of the ones I mentioned, several of you might have mentioned, and that's another reason I didn't necessarily want to mention names because there was some overlap. And I'm really excited about how um, how many messages I got and how many of you took the time out of your day to interact about that. It's very meaningful. It means a lot to me. And I think all of you who sent in references. And I did have one listener who sent in a story about going to see the movie. And she was about the same age I was when the movie came out. And uh, this listener, you know who you are. <laughs> I'm anonymizing everybody, but you know who you are. And uh, we actually, uh, this is actually someone who I know. So it was in, in IRL. It's also someone I know in real life. So it was really meaningful and uh fun to get this message from her. It's me. I didn't know about her, which is that we're very much kindred spirits in terms of our Titanic uh, teenage years story. So I love it. So here it is. I was 15 when Titanic came out. I don't remember seeing any advertising for it at all, which is surprising because we watched so much TV. So did we. But it came out right at the beginning of our Christmas break, about six months into having my learner's permit. We went to go see it as a family, even though none of us knew anything about it. See, there you go. Full circle. People just went to movies back then. It's amazing. I had only ever seen Leonardo DiCaprio in What's Eating Gilbert Grape, so I didn't have a reference for him in my life. I remember watching it and just being obsessed with finding a love like that and a dress like Rose wears during the sinking. Me too. I wanted it so badly. And now you can get you can get replicas online, but they're the good ones are so expensive. I can't justify the cost. I spent the entire this is back to the quote. I or the message. I spent the entire Christmas break trying to find a friend to go see it with me. At the time, you could only drive with a permit if you had an adult over 21, and you could not drive a car with more than one 18 and under person. So I was the first person with a permit, and my poor dad rode around shotgun with me while I picked up random friends and saw that movie almost every day of winter break. And then my dad would drive the car back up to the theater, and I would drive my friends home. And that's probably the Christmas I remember most from growing up. Just 20 viewings of Titanic with a rotation of seven friends. And you were lucky. I only had like three friends that were willing to go multiple times with me. And even they got burned out eventually. Uh, spending all the money I earned babysitting and smuggling popcorn into the theater under my coat. That's incredible. And she also then added, my mom just informed me, I guess she um, had 
talked to her mom about it that same day, that I bought the soundtrack for all of my friends for Christmas and I learned to play My Heart Will Go On on my clarinet. And it was on a loop in my room for all of 1998. It's incredible. Thank you for sharing that story. You know who you are. And I, it's sort of full circle. I use that term a lot. I'm aware. For me too, because actually my niece, who is 12, the other day surprised me with a video of in, of just her in her garage playing My Heart Will Go On on the saxophone. So that was a beautiful moment <laughs> between me and my niece. And I don't know, there's a bridge there, right? Um, 25 years later and a 12-year-old is still, you know, enamored of the magic of it. And um, of course, that, that score and those songs are just absolutely stunning. So thank you to everybody who wrote in. Always write in to me, even if you missed it for this episode, but you have a story about seeing it for the first time or anything related to the movie or anything related to the ship. Does it matter if it you know, coincides with what episode I'm doing that week. It can be anything. Go to one of the museums. I'm hearing from a lot of you guys going to the exhibition in London, and I am incredibly jealous. <laughs> so a few of you have sent me some pictures and stuff. Keep those coming. I'm very, very jealous, but I am ha- very happy for you that you are able to go. I want to just end by sharing something with you from the Titanic 20 Years Later documentary that James Cameron was a part of in 2017. It is very accessible. The last I checked, it was still available on Disney+. Plus. I watched it fairly recently. And this is Cameron just returning to the, the movie 20 years later with a sense of like, what do we get right? What do we get wrong? Why do I stay obsessed with this? He meets with some of the descendants of victims. He talks with someone from the Strauss family, someone from the Astor family, someone from the Margaret Brown family. And there is a bit of, you know, most of it is just a very polished kind of documentary style, you know. But there are a few moments where Cameron seems rather emotional about, you know, he talks about how he depicted Murdoch and apologized for the liberties he took with with the Murdoch's suicide scene and sort of talks this out with some of the descendants and that seems cathartic for him. And in meeting with the descendants, I don't know, it's just, you could tell in those sections, he's feeling quite emotional about having made this movie. And I think seeing that even 20 years later, it's still something that moves viewers. And I think he's, I think Cameron's proud of his work. And I think he still wants to be in the milieu of everything Titanic, which is, you know, incredible. If you're a Titanic person, I think you can appreciate that about him. So he does also meet with Robert Ballard, obviously the man who found, or one of the men who found the wreck in 85. There is an interview he does with Ballard. And and like I mentioned before, they've known each other for years at this point. But Ballard says to James Cameron, he says that he knew her. And again, this is, uh, was it last week that we talked with the Rose episode? We talked about why ships are called she's. And actually my daughter asked me that the other day, just out of nowhere. I didn't tell her I was working on this you know, as a topic at all. She just randomly asked me that. And I still didn't have a straightforward answer. But uh, Cameron, uh, Ballard says to Cameron, he says he knew her, Titanic, as an old lady in her grave, but that Cameron had brought her to life. I think 
<laughs> gendered analogy, there may be some problems with that statement. But I think if you see how Ballard uh, delivers this message to Cameron in the movie, it seems very sincere. And I thought it was pretty meaningful, that bridging of the two kind of eras of of Titanic research and cultural resurgence, obviously a huge resurgence in the 80s that centers around Ballard and then this huge resurgence in the 90s that centers around what Cameron did and those two, the meeting up of those two moments was pretty symbolic. But just to to sum up how I feel about this movie, this right now is just LA talking to you without Without, you know, being behind any academic research or any script, I, you know, coming out of these five episodes that I've done, I just wanted to say this, which is that I think the sheer perfection of the performances of Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio, these two movie stars, and I don't think we really, we don't really see movie stars emerging anymore. These two personalities, these bodies in motion, and that's actually the title of a book about James Cameron's film. I think it's called Dynamic Bodies in Motion. But the performance of the the performances from both of them, they're just timeless. And it's not something you can define or quantify. And for people who have asked me to defend my love of this movie, sometimes it's hard for me to put into words because I I think sometimes the things we love are not definable or conducive to labels, and I think that that's okay. Movies are very mathematical now, in my opinion, but this movie, you know, even for all of its special effects, which, you know, are seamless, really, it's not mathematical, actually. It it shouldn't have worked, but it did, and some things just defy all the odds. <laughs> And I I recognize that it's potentially problematic, you know, that this movie tied the history of a traumatic event irrevocably to romance. And truly, I can understand why some people don't like it, but it makes perfect sense, at least to me, in terms of how we continue to write Titanic and think about it. The loss of an era, the loss of innocence, our, you know, struggle as a society with grief, the loss of love. I think this is how we continue to read about Titanic, write about Titanic, think about Titanic. And this movie is tied to that and married to it forever now. There's something guttural. I know I've used that word a lot, but there's something so insanely guttural about feeling like you're on that ship, falling in love with Jack and Rose, that you're on the journey with them. And it's something that clicked in my mind in 1997 and it just has never clicked off. And I personally am incredibly grateful to James Cameron, to Kate, to Leo, to everyone that was involved in that movie for creating this, just this thing that brings me so much joy and has for 25 years. So if any of those people ever stumble upon this podcast episode, which I understand is highly, highly unlikely, um, just know that you right here is at least one person and I know of many others where it has just truly mattered in my psyche and my life and feeling inspired in my life. So there you go. All right, guys, Titanic forever.
Titanic forever. I want to play one last little thing and then stick around at the end for some announcements. I just want to say a couple of things. We're here tonight to celebrate the magic of movies, and I'm grateful every day to get to be a part of that magic and a practitioner in it, and, and I love it. And tonight has been such a great celebration for us, and it seems to somehow express this strange wave that's happened with, with Titanic where people all over the world have, have opened their hearts to this movie, and that's so gratifying to, to, to all of us that, that worked on it, and we'll be forever, forever grateful to them, the audience, and I know a lot of you are, are watching at home. In the midst of all this euphoria, it's um, it's kind of hard for us to remember that that this euphoria and the success is for a film that's based on a real event that happened, where real people died that shocked the world in in 1912. So I'd just like everybody to go with me just for a second on, on something here. I'd like to I'd like to do a few seconds of silence in remembrance of the 1,500 men, women, and children who died when the great ship died, and uh, the. The message of Titanic, of course, is that if the great ship can sink, the, un the unthinkable can happen, the future is unknowable. The only thing that we truly own is today. Life is precious. So during these few seconds, I'd like you to also listen to the beating of your own heart, which is the most precious thing in the world. Join me, please, in a few seconds of silence for Titanic. And that was from the Oscar speech that Cameron gave for winning Best Picture in 1998. All right. I want to thank all of my newest Patreon members. As always, I want you to know it. I don't take it lightly. It's a very big deal to me that you think the work I'm doing on the podcast is worthy of your sponsorship and support. So thank you so much. Uh, my newest Patreon members, James Holland. Matt Haeckel and Philip Lockett. Thank you. You guys are the best. My, I call it my unsinkable crew. And I'm going to work on a, should we do a t-shirt? <laughs> I just feel like there's a couple of you have messaged me on Patreon about merchandise. And I don't know, it's, it's starting to, I'm really feeling like a vibe start to develop of we're kind of a crew. Uh, unsinkable listeners. I have guys, I've, I'm developing friendships with a lot of you on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Patreon. It's really incredible. So I don't know if you have any ideas to that end, let me know. If you are able to become an unsinkable crew member, that, oh gosh, but then that plays into a crew of Titanic and maybe that's not a great thing to say. I don't know. I'm going to have to workshop this. But um, anyway, if you are able to support the pod on Patreon, that is patreon.com backslash unsinkable pod. There's two tiers. At the upper tier, we are going to start doing uh, VIP tier meetups in late March, and then they'll be quarterly. So that is just in the upper tier. But both tiers, you have access to the bonus episodes. And the bonus episode at the end of this month is going to be on some of the second class passengers. You guys voted on Patreon and that is where we landed. So I'm excited to do that. And the bonus episodes, uh, they go live on Patreon on the last day of every month. There is another episode coming at you later this week uh, for Black History Month. I am doing an episode on Joseph LaRoche, who was from Haiti. 
moved to France for school and um, met and married his wife and had kids in France. And then he was headed back to Haiti, actually, um, eventually. Um, his first, the first leg of the journey being on Titanic. It's a pretty incredible story. Uh, there's a lot of sources actually because his children and his wife did survive Titanic. And there is a lot of history to discuss in terms of Haitian, the Haitian story that I, I didn't know. And as with most of these episodes, when I research them, I uncover so much more than I expected. I am excited for that episode. I think his is a very important story and not told enough. So that will be likely this Friday. I'm hoping to have that ready for this Friday. Also interviewing, I've got the interview with the museum director for the Titanic Museum attractions this week. And so that episode will uh, be in your feed over the next couple of weeks as well. And then we'll be barreling into early March with the book club episode, which is Hazel Gaynor's The Girl Who Came Home. That is a Titanic historical fiction. So it's a lot going on. There's a lot coming up. It's exciting. And I, that's not even to mention some really cool things that I'm, I've got coming down the pipeline that I'm not quite ready yet, ready to announce. Um, it's still sort of in the works, but it's going to be an exciting spring on Unsinkable. All right. Thank you guys so much. As always, contact me, uh, unsinkablepod at gmail.com. On Twitter and on Insta, I'm unsinkablepod. Thank you for listening to this series on the 97 movie. Thank you for being a part of letting me indulge all of this Titanic movie nerddom. I love it. It's such a big part of my life. And thank you for, for being a part of it with me. And I've heard from a lot of you online that this movie is just as meaningful to you. And I have loved connecting about that. So anyway, you guys are the best. It's awesome. And a lot of new listeners from all over the world. So welcome. And okay, have a great week. Talk soon. Bye.